The Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. Enter promo code PLANET at FANDUEL.com for a bonus match of up to $200. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket, and get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app and enter our code PLANET for $20 off your first tickets. The worst part of it for me was hanging, literally hanging a banner that said Dos Acero once again above the U.S. Fan Fest stage before the game. And that's just, it's, it's not only tempting fate, it's bad karma, it's really arrogant. Like they said, you know, they played well in four out of five games, but, I mean, it's a pretty big but when you're saying hey, we lost in the semifinal that if we had won would get us into the Olympics for the first time since, you know, 2008. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall and SI.com's Live You Bird. Brian Strauss is, is homesick. Eat some chicken soup, man. Feel better. Uh, we'll, we'll get you on here next week. Um, guys, I, I want to start today uh, with with some good news. You might not be expecting that. You might think we'd go right into the U.S. men's national team. But Toronto FC, congratulations. The playoffs. You did it. Only took nine years. But uh, but no, in, in all seriousness, uh, amazing accomplishment for them. Uh, Grant, you've been around MLS for a while. Uh, this is This is big for Toronto. I'm feeling really happy for Toronto FC fans. Uh, you know, uh, they went longer without making the playoffs than anyone in this league has, as far as I, as far as I know. I think nine seat, you know, nine seasons to get in. I think Salt Lake was probably the team that took the second longest time. Uh, and and here they are, uh, and they deserve to be in the playoffs. They didn't just squeak in. Certainly, they spent a ton of money, and so you're like, well, maybe they should have been in the playoffs long ago. But the guys that they brought in this year, uh, Sebastian Jovinko has been the MVP, most likely, and added to his legend by flying in from Rome on the day that he then comes on for Toronto FC uh, and scores a ridiculous, ridiculous goal. Osorio, Jovinko inevitably ahead of him. Just running through the New York defense. Um, to put the finishing touches on their playoff qualifications. So uh, clearly this is a team that uh, they haven't been the best team in the league this year, but are they capable of winning the MLS Cup title? Yeah, they are. I mean, there's obviously the, the talent on the field. It wasn't on the field really last night. I mean, Michael Bradley sat out with a, with a minor groin injury. Josie Altador uh, started the match on the bench and then was was <laughs> promptly sent to the locker room for getting a red card for abusing uh, a sideline official. The official uh, must have asked him if his confidence was doing well. <laughs> well, he obviously didn't listen to the Planet Football podcast. Uh, 
eh, man. And then, and then uh, Javinko comes off off the bench. What I love is that in, uh, in Greg Vanny's post game remarks, he said that he was he was texting with Javinko uh, on his on his way back, and Javinko said, you know, I'm I'm ready to go. Like I'm I'm in. And this is a guy who played in your qualifier the day day before, and and for a lot of the big name, big money talent that comes to MLS, you don't necessarily see that kind of commitment, that kind of eagerness to, to get back onto the field the next day. I think that speaks volumes to, to what he's done to that team. Um, and nine seasons. There's a lot going on in Toronto last night. A lot in Kansas City, too. Abnos, our, our producer, Alex Abnos, Grant Wall, you guys big Kansas City Royals fans. Very happy. Pretty impressive comeback by the Royals. I, I'm a little bummed out that for Toronto's sake, that Toronto qualifying for the ALCS happened the exact same night in the exact same town that Toronto FC makes the playoffs finally, because I think it's on page four of the Toronto paper today. <laughs> but there will be time to for Toronto FC to, to get more attention as they move forward here. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and like you said, they did not just squeak in. I mean, right now they're in second place in, in the Eastern Conference. MLS expanding the playoffs to six teams in each conference, I think, made it, you know, pretty much a given what they were spending uh, that, that they would get in this year. But as we've seen in the past, um, you know, no givens with Toronto FC. They spent a ton of money last year also, and, and it didn't work out. So congratulations to them. Uh, and now we move on to uh, to Jurgen Klinsmann and the U.S. Men's National Team. Jurgen Klinsmann, former Toronto FC consultant. Uh, a An awful, awful week. Uh, Livia, we can bring you in on this. Um, you were at Olympic qualifying uh, which falls under Jurgen's umbrella, um, and and we'll get to that in a little bit. We're also we'll also get into some European uh, EPL talks. So stick around with us for that. Um, but first, let's go with the men's national team. They fall to Mexico in the Concacaf Cup playoff. They come back emotionally hungover, obviously, and and fall to Costa Rica. Win or lose against Mexico, I don't know that they were going to play all that well against Costa Rica. Grant, you were out at the Rose Bowl. Uh, what what have you seen from from this team, and and what's your biggest takeaway from everything? Well, I think the U.S. was incredibly lucky to be in a, in a situation uh, as the game appeared to be headed to penalties. And if it had gone to penalties, I actually think the U.S. would have won the game. Uh, that's not a reflection of any superiority by the U.S. on the field for almost the duration of that game. And, and I think looking back, if you're going to lose, and uh, it's also just the way the U.S. looked in this game losing, playing so deep. Um, you know, a shadow of what Klinsman has promised uh, for years now about how the U.S. would play against decent to good teams. And this was not a great Mexico team. This is a good Mexico team. They're pretty good, but they weren't great. They were very beatable on this night. Um, and so in, in some ways, the U.S., I think, was fortunate to be in a position that they were in. Uh, and yes, you can compliment the, the U.S. players, most of them, I think, for... Um, you know, uh, keeping their heads in the game, not quitting, not, uh, you know, folding up their tent when Mexico went up in extra time. Uh, and the Bobby Wood goal kind of came out of nowhere, but a really good finish by a guy who I think uh, is starting to win over the fan base a little bit as a real possibility uh, with the, some of the big goals he scored this year. That was a really well-taken finish. So um, you look at the whole thing, terribly disappointing uh, on different levels, uh, not qualifying for Confederations Cup in 2017, losing to your arch rival, uh, the way the U.S. played, um, just uh, a really tough defeat all around, and it's part of a hole now. It's part of a trend. 
you know, finishing fourth in the, in the Gold Cup, uh, losing to a lot of CONCACAF teams uh, on home soil now, uh, Jamaica, Mexico, Costa Rica in the friendly. Panama is technically a tie because it went to penalties, but they lost on penalties. So uh, if you're looking at World Cup qualifying right now and asking the question, well, where does the U.S. fit in in CONCACAF, uh, I don't know if it's one of the top two teams in CONCACAF right now. That's uh, that's the Jurgen Klinsmann era, everybody. Um, I, I'll be honest. I actually, at the start of the game anyway, liked the lineup that he put out. I thought that was a lineup that you know the U.S. is familiar with. That's a lineup that, that they've won games with. That's a lineup that they could play in a, in a World Cup with. Uh, it just didn't match what you saw on the field. It was, it was not, not good. Um, and it's, it's an old hallmark of the U.S. to, to not put their heads down and, and stay in games. We've seen that in past eras. That's nothing new. Um, what, what we haven't usually seen is, is Mexico uh, being a little more mentally tough and, and bouncing back. I think when you got that, that equalizer from Bobby Wood, a lot of Mexican teams in the past might have might have folded up and, and kind of kind of, you know, just let the U.S. maybe get even another. Um, but, you know, they they came back and uh, and, you know, and, and credit to them. They, they took it. Liviu. Uh, I want to welcome you in here. What uh, what did you see from the U.S.? Your tactical breakdown, I, I thought, on Planet Football really broke it down uh, succinctly. Well, for me, it wasn't so much that that they lost, or even even the way that they lost. I mean, if you're if you're looking at a team like Mexico, the squad that they put out, and the squad that the U.S. had, I, I think that Mexico was still superior at pretty much every position. So. I think to expect to play a team like that straight up would have been very difficult, if not impossible. So I, I don't really think it's a, a negative in itself that, that the team played so defensively. But, um, and I know we're going to talk about Mourinho later, but if you're going to park the bus, then park the bus and do it properly. I mean, there were huge gaps in, in the U.S. defensive shape a lot of times, especially between you know the midfielders and the forwards, and it really... It really left the forwards out on an island where I think Dempsey and Altador both had very little influence on the game. Dempsey's hold-up play kind of improved in the second half. He had some opportunities where he got the ball, kept a hold of it, and kept possession going for the U.S. But, I mean, the forwards in general just were, were not involved. Um, you know, it was, it was, again, the tactics were okay, and I don't think it was any different than the U.S. played at the World Cup, really, because they were dominated in all but, I would say, the first half of the Portugal game there as well. But, I mean, it, there is something to be said for the fact that we have ex been expecting Klinsman to, to implement that proactive style he's been talking about. And really, we haven't seen it yet. And, uh, you know, the, the turnover in the U.S. player pool has been very, very slow just because, um, you know, the, the pool in general isn't very deep right now. So I think that's also part of the problem is that he hasn't been able to identify players who can come in and really make a difference uh, from the start. But... I mean, all these factors kind of put together, um, they, they all came together at, at the, exactly the wrong time for the U.S., and yeah, it was, it was not a good week on the field. By the way, Abby, you had asked me earlier what I would call this past week if we're going to come up with some catchphrases, and for me, it's dos a cero la revancha, which is uh, two zero the revenge, <laughs> uh, which for me, this is sort of uh, an important thing. Um, Mexico qualified for two tournaments this past week, the Confederations Cup and the Olympics. 
the U.S. qualified for zero. And to me, that's the only dos acero that matters uh, over the past week. And la revancha means the revenge. Uh, and I, I really think U.S. soccer lost its mind uh, with all this dos acero stuff, you know, and, and this whole thing about trademarking dos acero. Uh, the, the worst part of it for me was hanging, literally hanging a banner that said dos acero once again above the U.S. Fan Fest stage before the game. And that's just, it's, it's not only tempting fate, it's bad karma, it's really arrogant. And it just, it reeks of some sort, sort of sense of entitlement to me. It's, uh, it's weird. And it just, there's no way that's going to come off well uh, if you're doing that before the game. And, um, and so wait till the game's over, have your fun with it. If you've actually won Dos Acero, but, you know, don't throw it in the face of anybody. And uh, I think in some ways here, the U.S. Soccer Federation got what it deserved in that sense. And it's not like the U.S. was coming into this game on a locomotive of momentum. I mean, this is like the lowest point that they've had in years. Uh, and it's it's one thing maybe if this is a World Cup qualifier in Columbus where Dos Acero is the, the norm. Last time I played Mexico at the Rose Bowl, it was Cuatro Ados, and that was the Mexico. Uh, it's it. Yeah, I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, that that's not the biggest problem facing the U.S. right now, but it, it certainly kind of speaks to, to to the culture and the fact that this game in a lot of ways was about galvanizing a, a fan base and, and hyping it up and and, and marketing and, and kind of ignoring the issues on the field, which is just the U.S. isn't playing very well. I think also, too, there's, it's, I wrote about humility, and that's part of this, those Acero stuff, but uh, I know this quote from Tim Howard you found interesting, too, uh, after the, the Costa Rica loss, and I think to me, the Costa Rica loss doesn't signify a heck of a lot. It's a friendly. The stakes were so much lower than they were for the Mexico game. But uh, what's what's the quote again? He said something to the extent of, we'll, we'll go and win these next two World Cup qualifiers against St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Trinidad and Tobago, and then everyone will be happy again. And first off, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I could easily see them lose at Trinidad. It's not going to be an easy game. Uh, yeah, they'll probably put six goals on St. Vincent and the Grenadines, but I, I don't think that's something to necessarily, uh, you know, good for good for your confidence, fine, but it, it's not going to, you know, change the fact that when it comes against, uh, you know, CONCACAF's better teams, let alone the world's better teams, the U.S. hasn't played very well. I, I do like that on a team that isn't necessarily flush with leadership, Right now, that Tim Howard, after playing in his his first game in over a year, steps in and and steps forward with that confidence. But it was the way in which it kind of came off that like like this is all nothing. This will blow over and and you'll all be happy. No, I mean this is Jurgen Glinsman has pointed out multiple objectives, uh, you know, for him and for this team and for this program, and they've pretty much missed all of them except getting out of the World Cup group. I just think it's really important to remind folks that nothing is guaranteed. Uh, this looks like an easy semifinal round of World Cup qualifying for the U.S., certainly easier than the other groups on paper. But you still got to play the games. And right now, especially right now, I just feel like the U.S. can't be assuming that they're going to kill St. Vincent. And they definitely shouldn't be assuming that they're going to go and win at Trinidad because Trinidad's been playing pretty well this year. Uh, gave Mexico a really good game recently in a friendly. Had a pretty good Gold Cup, I thought. Um, and you know, I've been down there. That can be, it's not as menacing as some of the Central American venues, but it's not the easiest place to play. 
um, and, and definitely not a, a given that you're going to win. Uh, no, not at all. Um, and look, if they do, that's great. That's what they need. They need two wins in November to end this year on a high note and, and then go into, into next year, uh, especially next March, which will be, uh, you know, the two tough, maybe two of the toughest games in qualifying in this round against Guatemala back to back. And then, uh, the Olympic qualifying playoff against Columbia. Before we move on to the Olympics, uh, Grant, I want to start with you on this Fabian Johnson situation. He's a guy that Jurgen Klinsmann has pointed out as as the best right back at the World Cup. Not my words, his. Uh, he's the U.S.'s only player in the Champions League right now. Um, and now he is fully under a bus. <laughs> what uh, what did you make of of the way that Klinsmann went about calling him out? Well, there's a couple of things going on. I think this is a really complex story that's not as cut and dried one way or the other as sure. so many things in life are. On the one hand, I think Jurgen Klinsmann has a bad habit of throwing his players under the bus publicly. Uh, he did that uh, even more egregiously, I think, with Alejandro Bedoya after the Brazil game, um, put him in a position he had never played in, defensive midfield, took him off before halftime, and instead of raising his hand and saying, I put this guy in the wrong position, Jurgen Klinsmann blamed Alejandro Bedoya and said he had a bad game. Uh, inexcusable, in my opinion. Uh, now, in this occasion, he has thrown Fabian Johnson under the bus. Uh, let's leave aside for a second what's been happening behind the scenes. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, the timing of this was very self-serving to Jurgen Klinsmann. After the Mexico loss, it made it seem like he was going out of his way to cast blame on one of his players. Um, Borussia Mönchengladbach comes out and says on their Twitter that Johnson is injured. Um, Klinsman said he was not injured. And after the game, Klinsman said, well, I guess we'll see if he plays this weekend, whether he's injured or not. And that's, and you know, it's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, if you're actually Klinsman, you might also wonder, might he now sit out the game just to kind of prove a point? <laughs> but what I've been told is a couple of things. Uh, one, that Fabian Johnson did not arrive until Tuesday night out in California because he said he wasn't feeling well. And that, that that's a fact. Uh, players were not happy about that. Uh, one level-headed player on this U.S. team says Fabian Johnson has not been very committed since the end of the World Cup. Uh, and that's from what he's seen in training, other things. So are the players totally unhappy that Jurgen Klinsmann said this about Fabian Johnson? That's not totally accurate, okay? So they, several guys think that Fabian Johnson has been not going at 100% for the U.S. national team since the World Cup. Um, that said, I still don't think he should have thrown him under the bus. I think he should have kept it in-house in uh, and not Klinsmann in this case and not use Fabian Johnson to uh, sort of deflect, distract from his own situation. Well, also, too, he, he used it as reasoning for why he couldn't bring on Nick Romando as his penalty kick savior third sub in a 120-minute game in, in massive heat at the Rose Bowl. And and that just, uh, he didn't need to divulge that. I mean, thank you for, <laughs> for doing that. Uh, but But that doesn't, make his approach to the game look any better either um i don't know that i mean look nick romando is amazing at, at saving penalty kicks but 
that's really the plan. I mean, Brad Guzan, do you have that little faith in him and, and PKs where he's shown that he's perfectly capable as well, that, you know, you leave a, a dying Jermaine Jones on the field, Beasley, all these guys look gassed by the end of that game. And to to think that that was the strategy all along and, and to drag Fabian's name through the mud along with it, it just, it, it was a, a toxic potion, I thought, of, of comments. Um, and... And look, behind the scenes in that locker room ultimately is the only thing that matters. And if the players in that locker room are are happy that Klinsman went public and, and kind of called out Fabian and, and maybe that's a wake-up call for him, then then so be it. And it's an entirely different story. Um, but definitely a, it seems to be a little more complex than, than what we saw on the surface. Um, uh, let's finish let's finish up with, with this on the U.S. men and then we can move forward uh, to the Olympic qualifying effort. Uh, does this change anything, Grant, for Klinsman? Uh, I know Sunil has backed him, um, but these, you know, the failures keep piling up. The players say that they back him. What's? I, well, I think I was the only media person to actually get a quote from Sunil Gulati after the game uh, against Costa Rica, which my question was, does Jurgen Klinsman still have your full support? And he said, uh, Interestingly, not totally answering the question, but maybe answering it a little bit, we'll sit down and talk in the next couple of days, as we always do after games. And he did not want to add anything more on the record. Um, so that's worth a follow-up, but it certainly <laughs> wasn't the exact same thing that Galati said after uh, the Gold Cup, which was, yes, he will continue being the coach even if we lose to Mexico. So this was a different answer. Um, so it's definitely a story to watch. Um, uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to learn some more information. I, I look at things right now, and, and clearly Jurgen Klinsmann's at the lowest point of his tenure. Clearly most coaches in his position would have been fired by now. Uh, but he, as Brian Strauss was saying last week, his job, what he's been hired to do, is not what Bob Bradley or Bruce Arena were hired for. And He's certainly getting paid a heck of a lot more, and it would cost U.S. soccer a heck of a lot of money to send him packing. So it's a different situation. And uh, do I think that there's an outside chance he could get fired? Yeah, I think there's an outside chance, but I, I still think I doubt that's what will happen at this point. Uh, there's, I don't know, I saw a frustrated team on the field on Tuesday. Maybe that's a a product of losing to Mexico, a product of not really wanting to be there, a product of playing in front of 9,000 fans, about 8,999 of which were rooting for Costa Rica. Um, but I, we'll see what their response in November is. Um, I, I don't think we'll see a change before then. Um, and if the response on the field isn't good, then then I think we got to take another hard look and, and see what ends up happening. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break and then come back. And uh, get Live You Bird's take on life in Sandy, Utah, where he spent a long time watching the U.S. U-23s. The U.S. men's national team isn't the only one who had a bad week. Ravens, Chiefs, and Saints, they all had their fans take a beating in NFL Week 5. And if you love football but you're sick of being let down by an awful team, take back winning at FanDuel. Now you can play with up to $200 in bonus cash when you use our code PLANET at FANDUEL.com. FANDUEL is the leader in one-week fantasy football, with more winners and more payouts than any other site. They will pay out over $75 million a week this football season. 
Entry fees start at just $1, so there's a league for everyone. Over 1 million players have won money playing fantasy sports on FanDuel, and now it's your turn. If you're watching the big games every week, FanDuel ups the ante and turns your Sunday into a whole new experience. Go to FanDuel.com and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner and use our code PLANET to sign up now. There's a special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it up to 200 bucks that gets earned as you play. That's a bonus of up to $200. The offer is only good for the first 50 people that use our code PLANET today, so don't get left out. Seriously, if you've been in a bar, at a game, or at the office, you've heard sports fans talk about their fantasy teams. Find out why it's gotten so popular and do it on FanDuel.com with our code PLANET. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. All right, welcome back. Uh, Livy Bird, you were with the U.S. U23 men's national team during Olympic qualifying out at Rio Tinto Stadium. Um, they had a pretty good qualifying campaign until the game that mattered. Uh, fell to Honduras in the semifinals, forced to go into a third-place game against Canada, which they won, setting up, which we now uh, have learned, is a two-game playoff against Colombia in March for one last place at the Olympics, uh, what were your takeaways from the U23s? Well, it was it was an interesting tournament, and a lot of the talk after that third place game from the players, the coaches, everybody who was kind of talking was that we won four games out of five. We played really well in most of the tournament. We just fell during the one game that mattered most, which is kind of an interesting, when you unpack it, is kind of an interesting way of looking at things, like, it's such a condensed tournament and they played they have such a small roster you know only 20 players because that's how many you, you get in the olympics and 17 of which were field players for the u.s um and you're playing games at altitude and the heat the game against honduras was at one o'clock in utah which uh, it was about 90 degrees on the field and we're talking some pretty good altitude there but at the same time i mean if you don't win, everything's going to come off as looking like an excuse. And at the end of the day, they did lose to Honduras pretty handily. I mean, Honduras dominated that game from start to finish. Um, the better team in, in every aspect, really. And uh, it, it, like they said, you know, they played well in four out of five games, but, and I mean, it's, it's a pretty big but when you're saying, hey, we lost in the semifinal that if we had won would get us into the Olympics for the first time since, you know, 2008. Um, so I think I kind of wrote this in my wrap-up column. Is it a complete failure? Well, no, because they haven't been kicked out yet. But has it been the rousing success that everybody expected it to be, especially looking at the group and then thinking, oh, it's Honduras in the semifinal. The U.S. has a pretty good record against Honduras at all levels. Uh, no, definitely not a rousing success either. No, and especially off the heels of, of what happened the last time uh, in qualifying for 2012, where they, I mean, they didn't even get out of the group stage, but I feel like there was a, a lot of, uh, the expectation was that they would just get the job done. And if there was, you know, a lot of youth teams have struggled to do that, um, which also reflects on Jurgen Klinsmann, the technical director. Um, and it's almost like the opposite of Mexico's Gold Cup, right? Mexico was atrocious. And then in the final, the game that they had to win, they were fantastic. Uh, and, and like you said, the one game where the U S had to be at, at their best, they absolutely were not. Um, 
there were some individuals I thought that that stood out. I'll, I'll defer to you as as you saw them from the press box. Um, but I guess who who were some of the the top players you saw on this U.S. team um, who you know figured to have a, a pretty long future here? Well, a lot of the guys who stood out did it before I got to see them in person. But uh, you're looking at uh, Jer- Jerome Kiesewetter and uh, Jordan Morris, the forwards, both scored three goals in the group stage. Um, Kiesewetter added another one in the final on a penalty, uh, or in the third place game, rather, sorry. And um, he ended up winning the golden boot for the, the competition. But... Um, you know, those two did well until they were faced with an organized defense. And then again, kind of like Clint Dempsey and Josie Altador in the senior game on Saturday, um, they were left on an island, didn't really have much to do. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, on the other end of the field, I thought uh, Ethan Horvath looked okay. Um, it didn't. None of the goals that were scored are really his fault. I, I didn't think that he really put a foot wrong. So he's been doing very well in Europe with, with Molde and, and they've been, uh, you know, doing very well in continental competition and, and in the league. So, um, he's certainly got a, a bright future ahead of him. Zach Steffen, when he did play, did, did fine. I mean, he hardly touched the ball in the group stage, but he was with the U S at the under 20 world cup. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we've got guys who we've expected to see a lot out of in terms of Emerson Heinemann, um, Gideon Zalalem, um, Cameron Carter Vickers and, and to be fair to all those guys and Matt Miazga even they were all at the under 20 World Cup and so they're they're not at this age group they're a little bit younger and, and Andy Herzog after the last game told me he said you know I took a risk I brought some of these younger players in um, when you're looking at the back the three back players when in the group stage you got Stefan Miazga and Carter Vickers all three were in the under 20 World Cup Carter Vickers is 17 years old still um, so Herzog took a risk and he likes to bring in younger players and likes to give them an opportunity. And that's fair enough. Uh, again, that kind of reflects on things that Klinsman has been talking about as well. Um, but those guys kind of struggle to get up to the pace and, and it is a step up, but I mean, Miazga has been playing in MLS, so he's used to playing against guys much older than 23. So I don't know if that's much of an excuse. Um, you know, so it, it's, again, it was kind of a mixed bag. And, and the central midfield, I thought, was pretty flat for, for most of the tournament. Uh, a lot of stuff was skipping them and going straight to the forwards. Um, they, they didn't, I thought Will Trapp did well. He, he was a good organizing midfielder, but he's not a guy you're going to be expecting to pick passes and, and be a primary playmaker type. But uh, when we're getting lower on the field, I thought Trapp did well, and his distribution was good, his decision-making was good, and after Luis Gill was the U23 captain for so long, uh, leading up to qualifiers, Will Trapp took over the armband and, and really ran with it. And he, he took a, a very good leadership position for the team. After the, the semifinal against Honduras, most of the U.S. players breezed right through the mix zone, didn't want to talk, understandably. But Will uh, walked right up and, and stood there before anybody even asked him if he wanted to talk. And he was like, yes, I'll, you know, I'll take the responsibility and, and talk to you guys about this, even though you could tell that Nobody wanted to be there. So um, definitely an interesting week for the, the what is supposed to be the future of U.S. soccer there. One question for you. Jurgen Klinsman earlier this year had said Gideon Zalalem was good enough to play for the senior national team right now. Um, we're not really seeing that, are we? I mean, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know if it was because of the way the team was set up. I mean, there were so many central players. They hardly had any wide players, although in the last game uh, they did actually play pretty wide formation, which uh, was interesting. Um, and a lot of players weren't available for their clubs because the, the first part of the tournament was, was outside the FIFA window. But 
Uh, Zalalem, I didn't really think he made much of an impact. I mean, he started the first game in the group stage against Canada, didn't play all that well, um, came off after about 75 minutes, and then he didn't even start the second game. I think that was kind of a message saying, hey, you know, you're going to have to step it up a little bit. Like you say, I mean, they're expecting a lot out of a guy like him. Uh, he did very well at the Under-20 World Cup, um, but he didn't really show much. And then he started again the third game, didn't really do much. Um, you know, it, he, he didn't, I don't know if it was the, the, the types of players who were around him. Maybe it was too crowded in the middle for him. Maybe he needs a little bit more space to operate. But um, the thing about Zalalem is that, you know, it seems like people are expecting him, again, to be this great playmaker type who's going to pick passes and, and pick teams apart. And he's shown flashes of ability to do that. But in my mind, he's more of a, of a tempo guy. You know, he gets the ball, he gives it quickly. He can keep possession for you. Uh, every now and then he'll pull off a good pass through the back line if it's open to a forward. But I don't think he's going to consistently be that number 10 type of guy. So he's good He's good for the tempo play. He's good for keeping possession. But I, I don't think he's this great midfield savior like a lot of people have, have tried to make him out to be so far. All right. Well, we'll see if the if the U23s can pull it off. Uh, it's definitely something that uh, that Jurgen Klinsmann needs Jurgen, the the technical director, to kind of uh, add to to his accomplishment list. Um, but we're we're gonna transition from one Jurgen to another when we come back. We'll leave it at that. Watching MLS or the Major League Baseball playoffs on TV is all well and good, but nothing compares to seeing the game you love up close and in person. The SeatGeek app is the best place to find a great deal, and now when you buy tickets on the SeatGeek app using our code PLANET, SeatGeek will send you a check for $20 with no catch. Here's how it works. You download the SeatGeek app on your iPhone or Android. It's free and takes less than a minute to download. Then you search for your event, find a great deal, enter our code PLANET, and when you complete your purchase, SeatGeek will send a $20 check to your house. It's that easy. SeatGeek is paying you to use their service. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of sellers online and shows you the best deals automatically. When you shop on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available all on one page. They also have a feature called Deal Score. It ranks every ticket on the market with a value score and plots the best deals on a color-coded map of the venue. Finally, SeatGeek's mobile app makes the ticket buying process seamless, easy, and safe. On SeatGeek, you can store your credit card, and once you find a ticket you want to buy, you can make the purchase with two quick taps of your phone. There's no faster way to buy tickets. So, to redeem your promo code and get your $20 check, download the free SeatGeek app today, enter promo code PLANET in the app, and SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. If you want to see the NFL, MLS, or MLB playoffs, use the SeatGeek app and enter our code PLANET to save $20. Our colleague here at SI and former Planet Football podcast host himself, Richard Deitch, does a must-hear podcast about sports media. This week, he landed one of the most wanted guests ever, WWE announcer Paul Heyman. Don't miss this special edition of the Sports Illustrated Media podcast with Richard Deitch. Search for it on iTunes or visit si.com slash podcasts for more info. All right, welcome back. Uh, guys, I want to close with some goings on overseas. The club scene will start back up this weekend after the international break. Uh, and Jurgen Klopp will coach his first game 
with Liverpool at Tottenham. Uh, their new hire, he's out of sabbatical, former Borussia Dortmund manager, led the club to back-to-back Bundesliga titles, led them to a Champions League final, and now here he is at Anfield. Grant, good hire? Oh, yeah. I love Klopp. Um, it was funny the other day I saw Ian Dark, who lives in England, does the ESPN TV broadcast, and he came over to do the U.S. Costa Rica game, and I said to him, man, they made you come over here for this nothing game. And he was like, yes. Um, but he also said, I get Klopp's first game for BT Sport this weekend. So I, I said, you know what? That sounds like a pretty good uh, game to have. So uh, it's it's the early game. So you have to get up early. It's at Spurs. I don't think anyone should expect any miracles. Um, and yet uh, we've seen time and again, I don't know if it's a psych college thing or, or what, that a new coach comes in and a team starts to play better. Uh, guys maybe give more effort. Uh, they want to uh, impress the new coach. Um, but uh, it's going to take some time for, for Klopp to, um, to get guys playing the way he wants them to play, uh, to get the players he wants uh, and the transfer committee wants at Liverpool. Um, but his style, uh, you know, and I think, Curious to hear what Levy thinks. Uh, his pressing style, high pressing style, is is also it's a lot of smarts goes into it, but also energy. and And we'll see which players Liverpool has that, that fits well with. Um, right now, he's got some injury issues to deal with. Danny Ings out long term. Joe Gomez out long term. Um, but I can't wait to see this. Uh, I think he's a good coach. He's also tremendously entertaining. Uh, he makes Liverpool more interesting instantly. Oh, yeah, that, that first press conference he had where he called himself the normal one in, in stark contrast to Mourinho. <laughs> if that's a preview of things to come, uh, then then this is this is going to be good for everyone. Uh, you the, the tactical side of things, uh, he obviously turned Dortmund in, into, into a power. Um, can he do that at Liverpool? Does he have the players suited for that, or, or does it kind of take a transfer window or two before we see the, the full clop? Yeah, that's a good question, and I wonder how he will use the younger players in the squad in particular, um, what he will do in the transfer window when he gets one. It's not too far away, so I mean, we could see changes pretty quickly in January if, if things need to be changed. Um, I think before we talk about Klopp's tactics, you have to go back to that personality of his. He's, he's infectious, and, and the players love it, and he's one of those guys... Um, like Mourinho, like Diego Simeone, who, when he talks, you just feel like you want to run through a brick wall for that guy. I mean, as a player, you don't want to disappoint a coach like that. And he, uh, his first press conference, if, if people haven't heard it, please look it up and watch it. It was excellent. Um, he, he goes from, you know, he calls himself the normal one. He calls out the British press and says, hey, I've heard a lot of things about you guys, so it's up to you to, to make them all look like liars. Um, he does the usual thing where he says we're going to need some time. Um, he begs pardon for his poor English and then uh, comes up with some some turns of phrase that English managers wouldn't even do in press conferences because they just don't have the personality or don't want to exude the personality that he does. So um, a guy like that um, rubs that off on his team, and I think uh, you will see a Liverpool team in the next few weeks that will want to run through a brick wall because that's just the kind of coach that Klopp is, and he's the type of coach that anybody would want to play for. So I think that uh, makes a big difference in the impact that he will have. And I, I think that his high-pressing style does translate well to the English game because it's high energy. The players are used to playing a uh, very fast game, so I don't think that will 
Um, I don't think that will uh, negatively impact them at all. Um, and we'll see. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see, again, just like it was at Dortmund, toward the end there, Dortmund was very good without the ball when Klopp was at the end of his tenure. When they got the ball and when teams sat in on them and said, okay, you dictate the game, uh, they weren't quite as able to do that. And that's, uh, that was one of the reasons that they struggled so much last year under, under Klopp was that uh, they were great when they were pressing and when they were trying to win the ball back and going to goal very quickly. But when it was a matter of building slowly, building out of the back and and really trying to uh, to pick teams apart, that's where they struggled. And at Liverpool, you're going to have the opportunity to do that because a lot of teams will say, oh, it's Liverpool, we can't press them as high as we want to, we're going to have to sit in. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how his philosophy has evolved. I know he was on sabbatical, and he did talk a lot about, oh, I was on vacation, and I came away to, to do this. But you, you can bet that his, his the gears in his head were still turning like crazy, and he was thinking... How do I improve on that last year? Because uh, he knows it wasn't good enough. Otherwise, he wouldn't have left. And uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see if he comes out with a slightly different philosophy because it's England, because he's a you know at a new club, because it's um, another year for him, or uh, just how similar it will be to what he did at Borussia Dortmund. My main hope is that Bayern trolls him by coming in to take players from Liverpool the way they did when he was in <laughs> Dortmund. Um, but uh, who knows if that'll really happen? <laughs> I uh, what I like about it is that I think it's it's the kind of and, and Liverpool fans might not want to hear this, but they're they're just not the power, right? They're they're kind of that underdog with the chip on the shoulder at this point uh, in the Premier League, and I think that kind of suits Klopp best. That's kind of you know people might have been seeing him end up at Bayern after you know maybe Pep Guardiola goes somewhere, but this. This is a, a good fit, I think, all around. And I think there's a lot of excitement. I think there's a lot of buzz around it, and that's a good thing. Whether that turns into results is entirely different. Um, but but it definitely won't uh, fail to entertain. Speaking of not failing to entertain, uh, Jose Mourinho uh, provisionally suspended one game and fined by the FA. Uh, he had this epic rant where he dragged the referees into the mix, dared Chelsea to fire him, and then said that doing so would, would be firing the best manager that they've ever had. Chelsea is just just in the weeds right now. They're they're not playing well. They're at the bottom of the table, fighting off relegation uh, early in the season. Grant, you have spent time with Mourinho. You've talked to him extensively. You've been in London with him. Is is this? Uh, I mean, he's had you know this is the part of the the tenure with his clubs where things tend to the wheels tend to fall off. But did you see? this extent happening and and do you see things getting better i mean i I haven't spoken to Mourinho uh recently i i should say um but uh you know the international break is a weird thing because it's like this chelsea meltdown has just sort of been frozen for a couple of weeks and we you know kind of stopped talking about it for a little while and and now oh wait here we go again um and uh, they've got a home game this weekend uh, against Aston Villa, which, you know, if that's that's a game you want if you're Jose Mourinho. You want to have a chance. That's his St. Vincent in St. Louis. <laughs> oh, I couldn't um, do Brad Gazan like that. Sorry, Brad. <laughs> uh, and, and if you can't win that game, then, uh, you know, he may go, you know, if, if, if especially if they lose at home to, to Villa. So, uh, we've we've gotten to that point now with Mourinho, and I know he just got a, a vote of confidence from his bosses, but uh, you know things have just you know, gotten so 
out of control in a sense, results-wise, um, that everyone's on edge over there. And it's one of the fascinating things about sports. How can a team that won the Premier League title quite easily last year with essentially the same players plus Pedro um, be doing what they're doing in the league? And so many individuals are struggling uh, right now for Chelsea. And I do wonder a little bit, I don't think this is a huge factor, but um, you know, Drogba not being there, that was one of your leaders uh, in, in that locker room. Uh, doesn't seem to be like a, a functioning one right now. No, and then the wheels have fallen off. I mean, he he blasts the medical staff, and and then the longtime uh, team physio she she leaves. Uh, you know, you look at the back line that was so strong last year. Everyone is playing terribly. John Terry benched. Ivanovic has been horrible, and I think he's hurt now. Uh, you know, Courtois is hurt, and and Begovic hasn't looked that great. I just it's one thing after the other. Fabregas hasn't had a very good season at all in the midfield and he was everything last season. It's it's just a combination of factors. They all I mean it's not all Mourinho's fault that all of these players are just following up a great season with with a terrible one on an individual level, but he's the guy that wears the crown, he's the guy that loves the spotlight and and he's the guy who's who's taking you know all the heat for it and that's just the way it works. I did not think for a second after he signed a, a long-term deal that uh, at the start of the season that he could be gone by December, but here we are. It's also part of the way he wants it to work, though. I mean, if you look at it, he always seems to really, uh, the opposite of Jurgen Klinsmann in some ways. I mean, he, he's always the guy who wants to be in the spotlight when his teams are doing well and when they're doing poorly, really, because then they can focus on him rather than focusing on the players, and, and it takes a little bit of the pressure off the players. So I, I, I think a lot of this is, uh, more calculated than we're giving him credit for. For me, the unexplored aspect of this, I think this all goes back to when Chelsea lost to New York Red Bulls too over the summer <laughs> uh, and and lost by quite a bit. But uh, actually, that might be a fun story to, to go back and talk to those guys. Oral uh, history. Oral history of the New York Red Bulls too beating Chelsea. But, the real downfall of Jose Mourinho. Um, but, you know, look, I, am I serious about that? No, I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> but clearly this isn't... Uh, you know, the Chelsea team we saw last year, and, and it's kind of been that way going back to the summer. You know, you don't take too much out of preseason, but um, it's been pretty horrible from the start. Yeah, and I think we, we all expected it to be a blip for them to, to flip the switch and, and turn it back on. We just haven't seen it yet, and, and time's taken. They're 10 points back of Man City uh, in the EPL race through eight games, um, and pressure's on. So we'll see what happens uh, with Chelsea. So the normal one, the special one, and uh, the beleaguered one, Jurgen Klinsmann. <laughs> At this point right now, uh, the U.S. definitely needs to turn things around. they got World Cup qualifying coming up next month, uh, an opportunity to do that. So that's going to put a wrap on it. Uh, I want to thank Grant Wall and Levy Bird, Alex Abnos, our producer, Brian Strauss at home. Feel better. We will be back next week uh, with another edition of the Planet Football Podcast. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. 
you get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.